Join me as we pray. Lord, holy, holy, holy. That's all we even need to say as we come together this morning. Lord, you are holy. You are everything we're not and yet have called us your own. We owe everything to you, Lord. And as we sing, as we pray, and as we continue on now in our service, I pray that you would guide, you would lead, you would help us to see your truth, that you would help us to see you in your holiness, and that we would reflect that even in a small way, Lord. And I pray this morning that you would remove distractions from my mind, from the minds of others, and Lord, that we would be fully focused on your word and on the truth that you've given to us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, we are going to be back in Colossians where we've been. That shouldn't be a huge surprise, surprise to many of you. Um, uh, and we will be looking at Colossians chapter 2 again this week. We'll be starting in verse 8. So if you want to get there, you can uh, get there now. Uh, as you do that, um, I was thinking a lot this week um, about, as I was studying this text and as I'm looking to see what Colossians is talking to us about, um, I started to think about this idea, and you're going to see this idea come out in today's text, as we talk about what it means to be complete, what it means to be fulfilled, what it means to be full. Um, and I, I come, as I thought about it, I realized, you know, people, people are always finding something to, to make their life complete. Everybody thinks that something, if they can achieve something, will make their life complete, that uh, their life will feel fulfilled, that everything will be right in life if certain things might happen, and, and some of us look to things, and, and uh, they desire fulfillment and try many things to find it. Um, I'm reminded by a movie line that became pretty famous for a long time and actually kind of influenced a lot of thought even in um, how relationships between a man and a woman should work. Uh, Now please, just as a disclaimer, I'm not endorsing this movie in any way, shape, or form. I haven't even seen the whole thing. But I do know that this line comes out and it's, it's become a line that has really defined a lot of relationships and a lot of worldly advice when it comes to relationships. That's from the movie uh, Jerry Maguire. Maybe some of you have seen it, maybe some of you haven't. Um, But this line that he gives, if you know the movie or if you are familiar with it at all, he's having trouble with his wife and he comes to ask for her forgiveness and ask for her back. And he comes to his wife and he gives this whole long speech. And then at the end of the speech, he looks at her and he says, you complete me. You complete me. And then the famous line comes right after that where she looks at him and says, you had me at hello. And so, but the idea of that is, you complete me, is what he's trying to say to her there, and it's pretty obvious by his whole speech, that his life means nothing without her in it, and that his life is incomplete, his life doesn't matter, his life is not important, his life is not full, unless she is there with him. And although that's sweet, and it's kind, and it's nice, and it's a touching story, and it would probably make us shed tears as we watch the movie... I am afraid that that philosophy has permeated our culture, and we've seen that in relationships with men and women. 
we've seen that men feel like if I need to find a spouse to be complete, like I can't be all I can be unless I have uh, a spouse. And, and the same thing with a, with a woman is they're looking to men. And I see this a lot, especially as I, I am involved a lot with teenagers and college students, right? They're at that stage of life where they're starting to look for that person, that person that they want to spend the rest of their life with. And unfortunately, I, I believe they've, a lot of us have fallen into this lie of we need another person in order to complete us. And that that's what's going to make us whole. And, and, and hence, we have the line that many people will use as if they're going to find a spouse, that they're trying to find their other half. Maybe you've heard that. In many cases, people will say they're finding their better half. Um, but the idea there is that I'm only half and I will not be whole until I have somebody to share my life with. Now, I'm not saying that that's all wrong and that that's bad to share your life with somebody else. By all means, it's great to be married and it's wonderful. However, if we find our completeness in that person, if we find our wholeness, our full potential, our fullness in that person, then we're missing out, as I believe we'll see today. But sometimes people, it's not even a spouse. Maybe it's, for some people, they try to find fulfillment and completeness in, uh, in their job. You know, if they can get to a certain level in their job, then they will feel that their life is full, that their life is complete. Maybe it's if they make a certain amount of money. Maybe it's if they live in a certain house. Uh, and once we get to that house, that house that we've been dreaming of, then we will somehow be fulfilled and we will be happy. Or maybe it's education. You know, once I get my master's degree or once I get my doctorate or once I get to this place in life, then I will finally be fulfilled. Uh, another classic one that you will know is, is a lot of... Uh, people, and I will say specifically women, at some point after they're married, they start to feel like, listen, my life won't be complete unless I have children. And so then they decide, well, let's have children. And that's, once again, not a bad thing. Uh, but the idea is, is I will find wholeness. I will find fullness in my life if I can have these things or these people in my life. And I find that people have done that throughout history and even in our culture today. It's, we see it all over the place. However, then we move on and, and we think, I start thinking about, well, as Christians though, in the spiritual sense, do we do the same thing? Like, do we feel like sometimes that in order to be filled as a Christian or to be complete as a Christian, to be complete in our churches, that we have to have these certain things set up? We have to obey certain rules, we have to check off certain boxes, we have to be a certain way or we have to feel a certain way or we have to add these things into what we do as a Christian in order to fully feel complete. And I think in our lives we try to do that and I think even in our, in our spiritual lives we do that as well. And Paul addresses this very thought in Colossians. So as we're thinking about completeness, we're thinking about fulfillment, Paul is going to talk about it as we come to the book of Colossians. So we will be starting in verse 8 in just a second, but before we get there, as we always do, let's do a little bit of review. We need to see what we've seen so far in Colossians. Colossians is a book, if you remember, that was written to a church in Colossae who they were starting to have a bunch of people come in and they were starting to say, hey, if you add this idea, if you add some legalism, if you say, hey, uh, obey this certain thing, or if you add worship of angels, or if you add certain festivals, if you add certain things, uh, then your faith in Christ will be even better. And that's what they're trying to say to the church at Colossae. And that false teaching has come into this church, and Paul is writing this letter to remind the Colossian church that there is nothing else needed other than Jesus Christ himself, that he is superior over all else. And so that's led us now through chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, where we've seen that Paul's thankfulness and his prayers are all rooted in Christ and Christ alone. 
that we would know Christ and that we would continue to know Christ. We've seen that Paul has shown us the supremacy of Christ by reminding us of who Christ is, the creator, the sustainer, the Lord of the church, that who Christ is allows us to see his superiority. We've also seen Paul show us the supremacy of Christ through his act of reconciling the world to himself, that he's taken a world that is hostile to him, and he's given an opportunity now through Jesus Christ, and as that opportunity has been given, we can be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and that reconciliation can happen, that relationship can be restored. And then last week, as we came together, we looked at the beginning of Colossians chapter 2, and even starting at the end of chapter 1. And we see that Paul showed us that, ma- that spiritual maturity, strengthening of our hearts, maturity in the faith can only come through one thing. And maturity in the faith can only come through Jesus Christ. We can't add anything to that, but as we, uh, as we look for maturity in Christ, it comes out in the way we interact with one another. And it comes out in the way that we interact with him. And Christ is all and in all, and he is the way to maturity. So that's kind of where we have left off, and now we're in, in Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. We actually ended in verse 8 last week. Uh, we ended in verse 8, but we're going to start in the same verse, because I believe this verse is actually a transition phrase. It's, it's getting us from what we just talked about, now we're moving into a little bit of a different track, but yet is very much related to what we just talked about. So let's start and just read through this passage, starting in verse 8. It says this, in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in, in him. So we look at this passage and we see Paul now is moving on from talking about maturity, but uh, here's the thing. As Paul talks about maturity, there's something we've got to come to, to understand. Paul is building on the idea of maturity as he makes this transition in verse 8. And what we see is that maturity is linked with completion. Maturity equals completion, as you look at your outline. Maturity and completion, actually a lot of times in scripture, when you see the word to be mature, it's a word that means perfection or completion. It's the same word, maturity, perfection, completion. A lot of times we use mature because perfection leads to some questions. And and it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in everything and never have any sin and completeness also sometimes can give us a little, completion can give us a little bit of misunderstanding because we think we've already arrived. And yet maturity kind of blends both of those together, that we will be growing in him and we will be growing up and becoming more and more like him and therefore we will be becoming mature 
But really, this word also talks about completion. And so Paul is playing off of this idea of, I want you to be mature, and in part of your maturity is I want you to understand that you are complete. That you don't need anything else to fill up your life. That you can be fulfilled in what Christ has already given you. So we see we are not made complete by our efforts, but by Christ. And that is the, that is the key point we're going to see this morning. That we are not made complete by our efforts, but we are made complete by Christ and Christ alone. And that is what Paul is going to tell us here in this passage. And he starts in verses 9 and 10, before he even gets to the ideas of what it looks like to be complete in Christ, or why we can claim our, our completion in Christ, he wants to tell us a little bit more about this. So we see in verses 9 and 10, in verses 9 and 10, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he says, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So first of all, we've already looked at this back in chapter 1, but Paul reminds us that Christ is the exact and full manifestation of God. That everything God is, full deity, is found in Christ. Full deity is found in Christ. He is not just a God. He is not a partial God. He is not some God and not, but he is all God. He, all of the fullness of deity. He is completely God, and as we understand that he is completely God, then we know he does not lack anything. Christ is completely God. He does not lack anything. He is the exact and full manifestation of God. And then we read this at the end of chapter, or verse 10. He is the supreme He is supreme over all earthly and spiritual authorities. We see that in verse 10, where it says here, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He is over all. Once again, Paul is repeating himself in different ways over and over again that Christ is superior. There is no other that even shines a light to him. Christ being God is superior to all else. There is no one, there is nothing, there is no spiritual being uh, that can compare. Christ is supreme. He is over all. And since Christ is completely God, he does not lack anything. But here's the cool part. Because then Paul makes this statement also in verse 10. That he says here that uh, not only is Christ the is God and Christ is full of all the deity that he needs and has. Not only is he over everything, but in verse 10 it says, And you have been filled in him. Paul wants to remind us, look, as Christians, if you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have surrendered your life to him and come to him in faith, and you believe in everything he is and was, uh, and and you believe in all the things he's done, and you come to him in faith, and you are saved, what Paul says is that we are filled with Christ. Because Christ took our place, he died for us, he took our punishment, and also gave us righteousness that we never could earn. And as a result of that, we are filled with himself. We are filled with Christ. And back to Colossians chapter 1, if you just go back a few different verse, a few verses, uh, you'll see this idea that Paul has already made. So this isn't a new point. This is a point, again, that Paul is even more so getting our attention with. In Colossians 1.27, uh, this is what he says. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The scripture is full throughout the... That's a distraction. Um, I forgive you. Um, so anyway, moving on. Christ, Christ is in us. 
Christ is in us, and we see that to be true through Colossians. And so the power that is within Christ as God, he has bestowed in us because he is in us. It's not a supernatural power that he gives us, but it's that we have him. We have the one. The Holy Spirit has been given as a, to dwell in us to constantly be pointing to Jesus because we are in him. We, are, we belong to him. We are one with him. We are united with him, which is where we'll begin today as we go into Colossians 2, 11 through 15. We're going to see three ways that we know that we are complete in Christ. You see here, Paul has told us now that Christ is God and he's filled us with himself. If we are filled with the, with the person who is God himself, then what more could we need? And the answer is nothing. We need nothing to be complete. We need nothing to find fulfillment in our lives. We need nothing to find fulfillment in our Christian life other than Christ and Christ himself. So then in verses 11 through 15, Paul moves on to tell us the different ways that we can see that we are complete in him. And the first way Paul says we are complete in Christ is through unity or union with him. We are completely united with Christ. Verses 11 through 13. We are united with him. And I already talked about that just a few minutes ago. But he talks about this at great detail. Starting in verse 11. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The first point we're going to see in verse 11 is that we are identified with Jesus. That we are identified with him. Now you say this talk of circumcision, the talk of baptism, it can get a little confusing. But let me just say a few things about what Paul is really saying here. He is pointing out to circumcision because as we remember, one of the groups that is in Colossae is a Jewish group. And the Jews are starting to say, one of those things that you need to add to your faith in Jesus is you need to get circumcised. Because that's what God's original plan was. He had Abraham be circumcised and everyone since then. And if you're not circumcised, then somehow your faith is not whole. That you might have believed in Jesus, but Gentiles and Jewish converts that have not been circumcised, which most of them already would be, but especially Gentiles, you need to be circumcised. And so Paul is bringing that out and he's using it as an example to kind of show what it is that is happening in Colossae is not right. That Christ does complete them. They don't need circumcision. And he says here, uh, he says, In him you were circumcised, with a circumcision not made with hands, um, uh, without hands. So the idea there is it's not a physical circumcision. Like, Christ is circumcising you, not in a physical way. Uh, he, he's pointing out the spiritual idea of circumcision. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, there was two different beliefs about circumcision. Some Jews uh, understood this very true fact, that circumcision was simply a sign of the covenant, the covenant that was made between God and man, that it was still faith that was the thing that was the covenant. Like Abraham came to faith in God long before he was circumcised. And so a lot of the Jews understood that circumcision, it's, it's an outward sign of the spiritual it's the outward sign of the spiritual covenant that's been made. And yet, what happened is a lot of Jewish people, especially the Pharisees and those who uh, were taking the Jewish law and making it more than it should be, they started to say, well, no, it's not just a symbol, but the circumcision itself is what, can, is what proves that you are of the covenant, that you need to be circumcised, that it's about the outward act of circumcision. And they forgot that God has always been about one thing, and that has been about faith. 
God has not ever been a God of works by saying you need to please me by working. Even in all the laws he gave in the Old Testament, it was all to show people that they needed him and they needed his mercy, they needed his love, they needed his grace. God always wanted to show that. And so the Jews have twisted this to now mean that it's the outward sign. It's, that's what means everything. And so if you're not circumcised, then you can't be spiritual. But Paul is reminding them, look, no, Christ has circumcised you in the sense that he has brought you into the covenant of God. You are in a covenant, in a relationship with him that was created spiritually through Jesus Christ. It's not about a physical thing that you do, but it's about the spiritual act that it's already been done. And that is what Paul is saying as he talks about uh, circumcision. So he's saying, look, as circumcision was the outward identification of the Jewish covenant, um, that you now are not identified with the Jewish covenant in the sense, you're not identified as a Jew, you're identified in Christ. That your identification now comes through him and in him. And then he moves on to talk about baptism. And so that's kind of the transition he makes as he talks about circumcision. Now you will know in a lot of ways, baptism and circumcision kind of do the same thing in a sense. Baptism is the outward show, the outward representation of what has already happened internally as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. That as we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we are baptized not to save us. We are baptized not because if we're not baptized that we're going to be condemned to hell or that is something we need to do to add to our faith. But we are baptized because we show the faith that is already in us, that Christ has already saved us. And as we're baptized, if you were, you were reminded of the time of Jesus being buried and being risen again and how that truth now applies to us. And so Paul starts talking about baptism and he says, look, you have not been circumcised um, physically. That's not what's important. But it's about the fact that Christ has brought you into his covenant. That we have put off the body of flesh. That we have put off the old ways and Christ is now reigning in us, living in us. And he says, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Now the word baptism here, uh, baptism has uh, double meaning in scripture. It means immersion is what the word actually means. Uh, sometimes that's specifically talking about water baptism. Sometimes that's specifically talking about, in a spiritual sense, being immersed into Christ. And I think Paul is using the word baptism because he's comparing it to circumcision. And remember what he said about circumcision, that it's not about the physical act, it's about the spiritual undertone. That the spiritual part is what is important. And so he is reminding us here again that baptism, as it is an outward identification of our life in Christ, it is also a spiritual understanding that we are being placed into or immersed into Christ through his burial and through his resurrection. And that's, that's the next two things we see in verse 12, that we have died with him. We've been buried. Our old life has been put away. And we see that in verse 12, and so we have died with him, but then we now live with him. Now we live with him, we see in verses 12 and 13. We have new life, and eternal life is found in Christ and Christ alone. You see, that is how Christ has identified us. He identifies us with him and in him because we are one with him. Because we have been buried with him, we have been brought back to life with him. This is very strong language that we are one with Christ. We are unified with him and therefore he is living life in us and we are not trying to do this on our own. 
I wanted to real quickly go to another passage this morning with you because I think this is, that passage is great as it is. It doesn't give as much detail as maybe we should look into. So we're going to go over to Romans chapter 6. And we're not going to unpack this whole passage because it would take a whole other sermon to do it. But I want to go into Romans chapter 6 and I want to hit on this idea again of, of what baptism looks like in this sense and what union with Christ means for us. So Romans chapter 6, if you'll turn with me there, we're going to read the first 11 verses. If you'd please listen along, read along as we go, and think about what these verses have to do with what we've just talked about. It says in Romans 6, What what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. For how can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that he would... Uh, no longer be in, that we would be no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we look at Romans chapter 6, this is in much more detail what we've just seen in Colossians chapter 2. And here's the basic things we we see here. And I'm not going to, like I said, I won't break this all down. But what we see is this. That we have died to sin as Christ has died. We have been raised to new life as Christ has been raised. And now what we're told is specifically here in verse 5. For we have been united with him in death. We will be united with him in a resurrection like his. The idea is that we are one with Christ and we have union with him. And what does that have to do back with the idea of completion or fulfillment? Well, it's simple. If we are in Christ, if we are united with him, if through his work he has united us with him, then why else would we look for anything else to fulfill our lives? It makes no sense. If he is everything and he is united with us, then we could not need or want anything else. We shouldn't. It doesn't make sense. And so Paul makes that point, that since we are united with him, that the baptism we've been placed into, we've been immersed into Christ, and as that is true, then we have no need for anything or anyone else. So as Paul makes that point, we'll go back to Colossians chapter 2. Paul has made that point. Uh, Then he says, not only are we complete in Christ through our union with him, we also see that we don't have to do anything to atone for our own sins because we have been forgiven. So the next thing we see is that we are completely forgiven by Christ. So the first thing we saw was that we are completely united with Christ, but now we see we are completely forgiven by Christ in verses 13 and 14. Let me read verses 13 and 14 again to remind you where we are. And it says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's some good ideas, the points we can see here that point to our completeness in Christ, to our fulfillment in him. 
The first thing we see is that all our sin has been forgiven in verse 13. All our sin has been forgiven. It says, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This, the, the tense of this word of having forgiven us is not, it does not say continually to forgive us or will forgive us. It says has forgiven us. When we come to Christ and we have been united with him, the point he just made, then all our sins have been forgiven. All sins past, all sins present, all sins future. When he took the punishment for those on the cross and we accepted that, that payment on our behalf, when that happened, then we became forgiven of all our sins. There is no sin that has not been forgiven if we've come to him and if we've been united with him. And we see in verse 14 as he continues this idea, uh, it says that he has canceled the record of debt. Uh, your translation may say something else, but God has erased the record of our sin. Not only have we been forgiven, but he has erased the record of our sins. That he is not a God who is going to hold our sins over our heads and say, sure, I forgave you, but I'm still remembering and I've still got this over here if I need to pull it out. Kind of like what we do in our relationships, like we get in a fight sometimes with our spouse or with somebody we love. And all of a sudden we'll say that in line that nobody ever should say and say, well, I, I remember when you were like this, you've always been this way. Well, God does not do that. He wipes away. He erases our sin now, to understand this more, uh, in the context of history, uh, at this time, most writing was not done in like we do it, with ink and paper, where the ink kind of settles into the paper. Most writing was done in papyrus or similar type things, and the ink would actually sit on top of the paper. It wouldn't sink in, just the way that the material was. And a lot of times what a scribe would do is after he wrote something out, if he didn't like it or if it was time to write a new thing, they would just take a wet sponge... And they would just go right over top of the paper. And it all would go away. There was not even a residue back. And then they could write a new story. They could write a new thing on that paper. And so we see that and we understand that. And this is the wording that's being used here. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you've been forgiven of all your sin. Christ has wiped that slate completely clean. There's not a residue that is still there that he is looking at and saying, man, they really messed up there. I'm going to keep remembering that. I'm going to cause them to have... Uh, a hard life because of that. That is not what God is doing. He has erased our sin. That does not, by the way, give us a license to continue to sin. We already saw that in Romans 6. We could go back and read that again, but we won't. Uh, so Christ has forgiven all our sin. He has erased the record of our sin. And how has he done that? Well, Paul answers that question too. He says, By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ has forgiven all our sins. Christ has erased the record of our sins. And he's done that because Christ took our full punishment on the cross. Christ took our full punishment on the cross. The wording that is used here talks first of all about canceling the record of debt. Um, this, is, this record of debt is, is a good translation in the ESV. And your translation may say something a little different. But what this translation is talking about is really... It's almost like our concept of an IOU. It's been a signed recognition of the fact that I owe somebody something. And what we're being told here is that Christ took that and erased it. That Christ took the penalty, the punishment that we deserve. Uh, back over in the book of John, and many of you have probably heard this before, John 19. If you want to turn with me, feel free. Uh, we're just going to be looking at one verse here. Uh, but in John 19, we see 
the same exact idea, and I believe this is what Paul is referring directly back to here. Can't say that for sure. I haven't had a conversation with Paul, uh, but I'm pretty sure, uh, as looking at Scripture, that Paul, that Christ is, that the Holy Spirit is reminding him of this. What Christ did is he was on the cross in John 19, verse 30. John 19, verse 30. And it says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The last words that Jesus mentions before he dies in, this, in, in John is, it is finished. Now maybe some of you have heard what that phrase is. It's tell it, I can't even pronounce it, tell it. Yeah, whatever. It's teletasai or something like that. It's a Greek word. I'm sorry. I'm blanking right now. But the word means paid in full. Anyway, we'll get there. Uh, the word means paid in full. When Jesus says that, he's saying the debt has been canceled. It has been paid in full. I have paid the debt. And Paul in Colossians is drawing back upon that. And he's saying, look, remember, he has canceled your debt. He has canceled your IOU. You owed something. What did we owe? Well, the wages of sin is death. We deserved eternal separation from God, and Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died for us, took our penalty for our sin, took our punishment upon himself, and that is how he could forgive us. That is how he could wipe, wipe the sins clean, is because he took the punishment for us, and the justice of God was appeased. And so we see here that we are completely forgiven by Christ. And what does this have to do with our fulfillment or our completion in him? Well, it's simple. Let's stop trying to make up for our sin and embrace our forgiveness. How many of us think that I've got to add to my faith, I've got to work hard, or I've, got to, uh, I've sinned this way, so I need to make up for it? God, I'm sorry that I did this the other day. I'm sorry that I spoke harshly to my wife, but today I'm going to go buy her flowers and I'm going to tell her how much I love her. I'm going to, I'm going to make up for it, right? That's, but that's not what we need to be doing. If our life is made up of, hey, I need to make things up to God, then we are not embracing the forgiveness he's already given us because we're remembering our sins far more than he is. We are our hardest critic, and we're going to remember the worst things about us. But he has forgiven us. He has wiped away our sin. Let's live in forgiveness. Let's not try to add to our faith because we feel like we need to make up for something. It's already been done for us. Christ is everything, and he has done everything that it takes. So after he talks about our identification and our, un, uh, our union with Christ, then he talks about forgive, forgiveness. We are complete in Christ as we remember our union with him and our complete forgiveness in him. But we are also complete in the fact that Christ has given us victory. Christ has already won the victory. And this is where he goes in, in uh, verse 15. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. One simple verse, but it says so much. We are completely victorious in Christ. We are completely victorious in Christ. We do not need to add anything to our faith in order to somehow make ourselves a better Christian to, com- to combat the world and to combat sin and to destroy Satan. Okay, Christ has already won the victory. That's what we're told. We see that Christ has stripped away the power of the enemy here in verse 15. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. That, that wording there is to strip He's, to get the idea of, he's like, he's taking away all their power. He's stripping it all down and taking it away. There is no power that the enemy still has over us because we have had victory in Christ as we've come to him uh, and we've asked for salvation through him. Not only has he stripped away the power, but he has publicly shamed the enemy. 
when he died on the cross and rose again, he was saying to the world, look, I have the victory. This wasn't a secret thing. It's not like, oh yeah, Jesus had the victory, but we're not really telling anybody. It's not like, oh, he rose again, but let's not tell anybody. No. When Jesus died and rose again, it was a public spectacle. When he rose again, he made sure that uh, people saw him and knew that he was risen again. And that is why the disciples spread out and started sharing the good news of Christ, because he is alive again. And there is a public recognition of the fact that the enemy has been defeated, that sin, death, and everything that comes with them, the author of those things, all of that is going, has been defeated. They have no more power And it's been a public demonstration. And these things together remind us again, as it says at the end, by triumphing triumphing over them in him, it's already been done. Christ has already won the victory. Now we're waiting to realize all of what that looks like. The future kingdom is still coming, and we can talk about eschatology at my ordination, so come if you want. Um, But in all that being said, Christ has already won the victory. He's won the victory over sin and death through his death and resurrection. And so therefore, we need nothing else. If we are united with him and forgiven in him, and now if we are having victory in him, he's done everything that needs to be done. And we don't need to do anything else to try to fulfill our lives, to complete our Christian walk, that we have to, we have to do certain things to feel fulfilled. That's just not true. Romans chapter 8, many of you know that passage. Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And it also says earlier in that passage, if Christ is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's another reminder once again that he has given us victory. We don't have to think that other things are going to be able to overcome us. They can't overcome us because Christ is the overcomer. And we will overcome as a result of his strength, not as a result of ours. And so this is the one thing that, it's on the bottom of the outline, the one thing that I want us to ask ourselves, and then I've got just a few other questions, but the one main thing that we need to ask, are you complete or are you fulfilled in Christ or are you trying to fill yourself up? You see, Paul starts, remember, in verse 8, and he says, don't be taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Going back to verse 8, we remember this, that many people, and we're going to look at this next week, next week or the next time we come to Colossians, it might not be next week, whenever that is, we will look at the idea of people who have thought and felt and that they needed to add to their faith something that is a tradition, something that is man-made, something that is not Christ. And as a result, we understand that we are trying then to fulfill ourselves. That's what's happening. People think they need to be circumcised or that they need to worship an idol or that they need to worship angels or that they have to believe certain things about God or believe that Jesus isn't everything because they are trying to redeem themselves. They are trying to complete themselves. They are saying, I can find something else in this world that will complete me. I can find something else or someone else in this world that will fulfill my life. So my question to all of us is, are we complete in Christ Do we find fulfillment in him and him alone? Are you or am I trying to fill ourselves up with something that is not him? That is a dangerous thing, and it's it's something we don't need to do. We are stressing ourselves out for no reason. Christ has done it all. That doesn't mean that our lives won't reflect that, but it does mean that we don't have to stress and worry and think that somehow any of this is owed to us. Christ has given us fulfillment. So, last couple questions. Have you been looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places? 
Maybe you've been looking in this world for fulfillment and you've just found out today that maybe your fulfillment is not going to be found in the world. It's not going to be found in your job. It's not going to be found in your family. It's not going to be found in how much money you make. It's not going to be found in your education. It's going to be found in Christ and Christ alone. And you say, I want that. Well, make today the day you come to him. That you, you just call out to him and you understand that he lived a perfect life, died for you, rose again, gave everything for you. Gave, he took the punishment for your sin. You've done wrong. You've been selfish. We all have. And Christ has redeemed you if you will just let him. You come to him and you ask for forgiveness. You ask him to change you and he will. If that's today, make today the day you need to do that if that is you. For the rest of us, are we relying on ourselves to find spiritual fulfillment? Do we think that we have to add certain things to the list in order to be completely fulfilled? Now, like I said, there will be things in our lives that should reflect the fact that Christ has already given us victory, that should reflect the fact that Christ has already forgiven us, and we will live in a way that honors him, sure. But that is not required for us to be fulfilled. It is not required for us to make God happier. It is simply that we are trying to respond to what he has already done. And are you trying to make up for your sins to find spiritual fulfillment? Are you living a life in which you say, I need, to be, I need to be good enough to make up for my bad things? Even Christians do that, even though we say it's not about effort, and yet we find ourselves doing that. Like, I've disappointed God this way, so I need to do extra good at church so that I can make up for that. That is not what God wants for us. Come to him and ask him for forgiveness. He's already forgiven you, and he's going to shower that onto you. So don't... Try to make up for your sins. And then finally, are you living your life defeatedly? If that's a word. (laughs) Are you living your life defeated? Or are you living your life understanding that Christ has has had the victory and we can live in that and we can trust in him completely? Find your fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. We all need to be there. He is enough. He is everything. He is holy as we've been singing about all morning. And as a result, ask that question. Are we finding our fulfillment in Jesus Christ and Christ alone? If you'd please stand as we join in one last song. Thank you. Is he really everything? That's the question that's been posed. Is he everything to us? He is everything. That's the truth. But do we live like it? That's the question. I'm going to close this service with Ephesians chapter 3 as we're reminded once again that we have fullness in Christ and that we have power through him. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with all power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless.